This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Annalise Michel? So first I'll look at the background this case, then I'll move to the timeline of unusual circumstances, then offer my analysis. Starting with the background, Annalise Michel was born in West Germany on September 21, 1952. She had a number of sisters. One died at the age of eight. Michel's father was described as emotionally vacant but caring. Her mother was described as strict and extremely religious. Everyone in Michelle's family was Catholic. She went to Mass twice a week when she was young. In the fall of 1968, Michelle had an episode in school where she blacked out and appeared to be in a trance-like state. Later that night, when she was in her bed, she experienced some type of paralysis. She had difficulty breathing. She felt as though someone was sitting on her chest. She also had uncontrolled urination. About a year later, she had another blackout while in school. It was also followed by paralysis and the other symptoms at night. Her mother took her to a physician, and Michelle was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. She was diagnosed based on the description of the seizures alone, as an EEG did not indicate any brainwave abnormalities. Not long after this, Michelle contracted pneumonia, pleurisy, and tuberculosis. She dropped out of school and was confined to bed. She was transferred to a sanatorium in February of 1970. A third seizure would occur when she was there on June 3, 1970. The seizure was similar to the other two. After a fourth episode, an EEG did indicate some abnormal wave patterns. She was diagnosed with epilepsy. She was given a number of psychotropic medications. During subsequent episodes, Michelle claimed to see grimacing faces and had periods of euphoria. She connected these periods of euphoria to her religious belief system. She was released from the sanatorium. Her personality was much different when she arrived home. She had outbursts of anger, which were becoming increasingly more frequent and intense. She said that she heard voices that would tell her that she would rot in hell and would be damned. She became averse to any type of religious object or sacred place. However, at the same time, 
she took more of an interest in Christian literature. She became particularly fond of the belief that she was suffering for a greater spiritual cause, like her suffering would save other people from burning in the fires of hell. In addition to epilepsy, it was suspected that Michelle may have had schizophrenia. She started hearing knocking sounds at night when she was in bed, although her sister reported hearing the same sounds. It could have been that Michelle was actually causing the sounds that she was hearing. Michelle's family members and people in the community were convinced that she was possessed. Her parents requested an exorcism from several priests. Initially, the priest refused to perform the exorcism, instead saying that this was in the domain of mental health care professionals. They recommended that Michelle continue mental health care. Michelle's condition grew worse, even though she was receiving a number of medications, including antipsychotics. She started throwing objects, growling at people, drinking her own urine, harming herself, and seeing demons. By late 1974, her condition was worse than it had ever been. Hallucinations were more frequent and more intense, and the line between fantasy and reality was blurred. A priest named Ernst Alt approached a bishop named Josef Stengel to obtain permission for an exorcism. Permission was granted. Ernst Alt and another priest, Arnold Renz, were to conduct the exorcisms. The first exorcism was performed on August 3, 1975. The priests only had permission at that point to perform a small exorcism, not what is referred to as a great exorcism, which would be a more complete version. I guess a small exorcism is just to get rid of little demons. I'm not sure. Eventually, approval was given to perform the great exorcism. The first one of that type would occur on September 24, 1975. There would be 67 exorcisms in total, one or two a week for 10 months. Each one took as long as four hours. As this was going on, Michelle's parents stopped communicating with mental health clinicians. Michelle was no longer getting treatment. Michelle's condition deteriorated as she was having the repeated exorcisms. She developed pneumonia. She had knee injuries from genuflecting, which was part of the exorcism process. She had bruises on her arms, wrists, and hands. Her eyes were blackened, and she weighed only 68 pounds because she stopped eating. On July 1, 1976, Annalise Michelle died from malnutrition and dehydration. She was 23 years old. Both priests and both parents were charged with negligent homicide. The trial attracted a lot of attention. It started in March of 1978. All four defendants were found guilty of manslaughter, resulting from negligence, and were sentenced to six months in jail, although later that sentence was suspended and they ended up serving three years of probation. Now moving to my analysis. Were Michelle's parents and the priests who performed the exorcism actually guilty? Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that they were guilty, starting with the inculpatory evidence, so the evidence that makes them appear guilty. Clinicians testified that Michelle was not possessed by a demon. Instead, they said that her epilepsy combined with her strict religious beliefs made it seem as though she was possessed. Michelle's death could have been prevented even one week before she died. So if they had forced her to get treatment, her life could have been saved even that close to the time when she died. 
All the defendants knew that Michelle wasn't eating. They all knew that she was losing weight. Only common sense was required to see that she was dying. In 1973, a physician had determined that Michelle could not make decisions for herself. So it was known well before her death that she needed other people to intercede to help her. She could not be trusted to make healthy or wise decisions. Now moving to the evidence that points toward innocence, the exculpatory evidence. There are tape recordings of some of the exorcism sessions, which the defense claimed featured demons arguing. The priests claimed that several of the demons identified themselves, including Lucifer, Hitler, Nero, Judas Iscariot, Cain from Cain and Abel in the Old Testament, and a local priest named Fleischmann, who had beat a man to death. Apparently, Fleischmann also had some difficulties regulating his intake of alcohol. It seems odd that all these demons would be in the same person. It doesn't seem like they were well organized or managed their time very well. They didn't divide up the responsibilities efficiently. Or maybe they converged there by mistake, like the demon possession calendar app on their phones malfunctioned. The defense noted that Michelle had the right to refuse treatment. She did not want to eat, and she did not want medical or mental health treatment. That was their counterpoint to the declaration that she couldn't make her own decisions. There is not much agreement by the treatment providers as to what was going on with Michelle. It's not like they had a definitive answer. So even though they came up with a lot of theories like epilepsy and schizophrenia, no one actually knew what was going on. There was no consensus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Weighing all the factors who, if anybody in this situation was guilty, I think they were all guilty as charged. The problem wasn't that they wanted to apply their religious beliefs. The problem was the starvation and not providing medical and mental health treatment to Michelle. They could have performed exorcisms, if that's what their religion called for, without endangering her life. There's no reason she couldn't receive treatment and spiritual attention at the same time. I have to wonder, though, why did they need to perform 67 exorcisms? Why not one or maybe two? What exactly makes a demon leave during an exorcism? Like what is the active ingredient in that process? Did they forget to bring that ingredient with them? Were they missing something that they were supposed to say, like a page was ripped out of a book or something? It seems really unusual. They wouldn't start to question the effectiveness after, I don't know, 30 or 40 times at failing to exercise the demons. So what do I think happened in this situation? 
why did Michelle's symptoms lead some people to believe that she was possessed? Now, the four people who were charged, of course, believed it, but many other people did as well. They weren't active. They didn't have any criminal role, but really the whole community thought she was possessed. Michelle had a strict upbringing. Every aspect of her life was controlled. She wasn't allowed to develop normally. For instance, she was not permitted to interact with boys her own age. Religious objects were used as part of her punishment, which may explain why she developed an aversion to them later on. Michelle had an extremely confusing and complex diagnostic profile. The mental health assessment she received wasn't that scientific. It was largely based on psychodynamic thought. So it was like this neuroses that occurred because of something with her father. So we don't see a lot of science being applied. We don't see a good quality mental health evaluation in this case. Michelle had epilepsy and probably Geschwind syndrome, a disorder characterized by hyper-religiosity. As far as mental health diagnoses, Michelle may have had schizophrenia, which would include hallucinations and delusions much of the time. It appears as though in her case, it would have. She may have also had depression, which means she may have actually had schizoaffective disorder instead of schizophrenia. Schizoaffective disorder is characterized by major mood episodes like mania or depression and symptoms of schizophrenia. There was some talk of dissociative identity disorder thrown in there as well, but I don't think the evidence supports the idea that she had multiple personalities. This confusion of the mental health clinicians may have been legitimate, but it opened the door for alternative explanations. So it caused people in the situation to think about what else could be going on. Michelle's mother did not want her to have a mental illness. She preferred a spiritual explanation. To her, the thought of mental illness was worse than demons. She was worried about what people in the community would think if they knew Michelle was mentally ill. I think this really illustrates the stigma of mental illness, at least in the early 1970s in Germany. The idea that someone could look at a person walking down the street and be afraid of them if they had a mental illness, but be less afraid if they were possessed by a demon is pretty alarming, right? That's really putting mental health in a pretty bad spot in terms of the hierarchy of fear. So on one side, we have Michelle's mother willing to believe that demons are responsible. And the other side, we see Michelle, who is very into religion and also willing to believe whatever her mother and the priest told her. Michelle truly believed that she was possessed and perhaps started acting on that belief, playing into the idea, adopting the role. Among other things, this gave meaning to her suffering. It gave her a greater purpose. Michelle had studied Latin and Roman culture, which enabled her to be even more convincing, like she was able to say phrases in Latin. Now, of course, the priest would think that these were coming from some type of demon, because, as everyone knows, demons really pay attention in Latin class. That's an important part of their curriculum, evidently. Michelle claimed that she was only possessed by Satan, not dead people like Nero, Cain, Judas Iscariot, Hitler, and that local priest. It was Ernst Alt, the priest, who came up with those ideas. I was wondering how that local priest became part of the narrative. Like, why would a priest want to possess somebody who lived in the area after dying? But then it occurred to me that maybe he was trying to promote the Possess Local campaign. He was just trying to be a responsible citizen of the local area. 
Interestingly, within Michel's religious beliefs, people who die don't come back and possess people. Only demons would do that. So Alt really didn't seem to have an understanding of those religious beliefs. According to an assessment that was done before the trial, Alt may have had schizophrenia. Arnold Renz, the other priest, was described as not mentally ill, but gullible. He was also described as intelligent. So it's interesting that the intelligence could not effectively combat the gullibility. Alt believed himself to be both psychic and telepathic. He thought he had a special ability to determine if somebody was possessed by demons or if there was a natural explanation for the symptoms. Alt had read the book, The Exorcist, which was published in 1971. He had also seen the movie, released in 1973. I think the reason so many exorcisms were performed is because Alt did not want to stop. He liked the excitement. He liked the sense of purpose that his involvement in this case brought him. It's also possible that this was a case of Foley Adu, shared psychotic disorder. Perhaps Alt was the primary partner and Michelle was the secondary partner. So Alt had hallucinations and delusions and Michelle adopted those. They may have played into her existing mental illness like they may have made it worse. So there are a few different possibilities here as far as shared psychotic disorder. This would explain why between some of the exorcisms, Michelle exhibited normal behavior. So her behavior was typically much worse during the exorcisms. Again, perhaps the idea here was that Alt was transmitting his delusional thinking in those moments. Perhaps her exposure to Alt was really the major problem here. Another possibility, of course, is that all the people involved were affected by folia du. Michelle, Alt, the other priest, Michelle's parents, they all believed that she was possessed by a demon, which under certain circumstances could be thought of as delusional. When considering all the factors, there is no adequate explanation for why Michelle was allowed to starve to death. Rather, we only see an explanation for why the individuals thought that she was possessed. Perhaps because they believed that she was possessed, they thought she didn't need to eat? It's really not clear why they connected those two ideas. Did they think that demons were bringing her food? It really doesn't make any sense. It's one thing to be open to the idea of demon possession. It's another thing to invest in that so much that one believes that eating is not necessary to live. The next item I want to talk about is how some delusions are more easily transmitted than others. We see that the type of delusion may have been very important in this case. The fact that the content of Michel's psychotic thoughts took the form of demons and certain people throughout history possessing her should not have convinced anyone she was possessed. One of the worst things that can happen to a person who is delusional is other people coming to believe in the delusion as well. It would seem that the people around her were very vulnerable to this specific type of delusion. They were eager to believe she was possessed. They actually preferred that explanation as opposed to mental health explanations. Other types of delusional thoughts do not transmit as well. For example, if Michelle had talked about how the CIA was out to get her, or she claimed the earth was flat, there wouldn't have been all these people rallying around her, offering her support in those delusions. Now moving to my final thoughts. One would think that this case offered a valuable learning lesson to everyone involved, but that's not what happened. Many people still believe 
that Michel was possessed by demons and, again, other historical figures. They believed the prosecution of her parents and the priests was a travesty of justice and that Michel was a victim of a demonic homicide instead of the more mundane earthly explanation involving gullible people who did not apply logic and reason. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.